0: Welcome back! Thank you all. I hope that pause was good for everyone. Um, I would like to give a huge shout out to Shelley and Crystal for the housing um, justice panel that happened earlier in the day. Having the language surrounding the homeless industrial complex is very powerful. We are grateful for all the resources that they shared and we are excited to share those with you. Um, so next up, we are going to dive right into corporate power resistance. So I'd like to welcome Keon to introduce the panel. Thank you.
1: Hi there, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for this panel. Uh, my name is Keon Bliss. I use he, him pronouns and I am uh, cal- or I'm talking to you all from um, Nisanon and Maidu lands uh, based in Sac- in Sacramento, California. And um, going with us today, I am, or the so-called California, or Sacramento, California. Um, Joining us today, uh, we have a wonderful panel uh, where we will be talking about resistance campaigns to corporate power, which are harming harming people, communities, and democracy. Um, As we know, corporations not only produce goods and services, they also govern through their direct and indirect influence to shape our laws, regulations, and rights affecting every facet of our lives. So today's panelists are here to, uh, to share their experiences of resisting corporate power and discuss ideas and strategies for asserting the rights of people to define their lives, their communities, and how we can all ensure a livable, sustainable world going forward. So I'd like to introduce our first panelist, uh, who is uh, the executive director and co-founder of People's Parity Project, Molly Coleman. Uh, Molly is a graduate of Harvard Law School, where she served as an editor-in-chief of the Harvard Civil Rights, Civil Liberties Law Review, in addition to working for a number of legal organizations committed to advancing justice for the most marginalized. Prior to law school, Molly spent three years with City Year New York, working uh, working to close the opportunity gap for students in Harlem and the Bronx, and to empower young people to become civically engaged leaders. Molly's work with PPP is uh, regularly uh, featured in national outlets, including the New York Times, Washington Post, and New York Magazine as well, and elsewhere. And uh, thank you so much joining us, Molly. Uh, thank you, we really appreciate you being here.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no worries. And um, yeah, we'll, um, ne- our next speaker joining us from the line is uh, is a author, um, activist, and documentary filmmaker, Jeremy Brecher, who has participated in movements for nuclear disarmament, civil rights, peace, international labor rights, global economic justice, accountability for war crimes, climate protection, and many others. He is the author of 15 books on labor and social movements, including the national bestseller, Strike. He has received five regional Emmy awards for his documentary film work. He is currently the policy and research director for the Labor Network for Sustainability. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeremy. Really appreciate you being here. And joining us uh, next is uh, our final panelist for this evening or for today uh, is Joseph Logan, who is the president of the Ohio Farm Farmers Union, a nonprofit, nonpartisan farm organization. The Farmers Union has adopted a campaign called Fairness for Farmers to raise awareness among legislators, agency officials, and the public about the destructive effects of corporate concentration in the United States. Joe is a fifth-generation family farmer from northeastern Ohio, producing a variety of products, and he has also served as the Director of Agricultural Programs for the Ohio Environmental Council, or OEC. Welcome to the panel, John. Really appreciate you being here as well. Or I'm sorry, not John, Joseph. Really appreciate you being here as well.
2: <laughs> Thank you very much. Good to be here. Mm-hmm.
1: So today we are here. Uh, we'll, we'll, our panelists today will be uh, giving, uh, uh, speaking for about ten minutes to present their work as well as uh, what they have found to be their strategies um, and tactics for resisting corporate imp- uh, for resisting corporate power. Um, and and we we'll, uh, st- we're going to start off. Uh, I'll be calling. Uh, each panelist uh, first to go over and present uh, their work. And then the rest of the time, uh, once a panel is finished presenting, we will have a question and answer session. Uh, we will be taking comments from the chat or as well live if you want to come off your microphone. So uh, just to, uh, to respect our speakers, we'll have the chat function disabled during the panel or presentation, but we'll turn it back on when it's time for questions. So hold on to those questions when they come up. Um, And you can also still chat with our co-hosts as well if uh, you want to have them written out already. So with that said, uh, I'd like to start off the panel, uh, this panel by uh, inviting Molly Coleman to uh, present on her work with People's Parity Project.
0: Uh, Oh,
1: sorry, you were were cutting in and out for a second. I thought you were off mute. Uh-oh. You're coming a little bit broken up. I'm, I apologize. No worries. If it's all the same for you, Molly, uh, if you want to take your time doing that, I can uh, go to the next panelist real quick. Mm-hmm. So next up in the panel then uh, will be, uh, I would like to invite Jeremy Rutcher. Uh, to present his work uh, as a documentary filmmaker, author and activist. Okay,
3: well, thanks very much. Great to be here. Very nice to be with uh, people who share the concerns uh, about corporate power and its effects and the way that people uh, need to discover how to struggle to replace corporate power with people power. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, My understanding was that uh, uh, I was supposed to focus primarily on my own work as it relates to corporate power. uh, And so that's what I'll do. Uh, I work uh, with an organization called the Labor Network for Sustainability. Uh, which is an organization that works uh, in the labor movement in the broadest concept of that uh, to try to uh, help organized labor develop uh, uh, clearer and more effective approaches to uh, environmental issues, sustainability issues, and in particular to climate issues. Um, And in all our work, we are constantly uh, involved with, uh, interacting with, and unfortunately, all too often conflicting with various manifestations of corporate power. In fact, it would be very hard for me to say anything about the work we do uh, that didn't involve the questions of corporate power. Uh, I thought... uh, uh, What I would start with uh, is one of the, and really make the focus of my talk, uh, one of the most important examples of climate protection struggles uh, that we've seen uh, really in the last decade or so, uh, and that's the struggle over the Keystone XL pipelines. The Keystone XL pipeline uh, was a proposed pipeline uh, from uh, Alberta, Canada, from the tar tar sands uh, region in Alberta. Uh, Tar sands are a very thick, uh, it's called uh, bitumen. Uh, It's a very thick, almost asphalt-like, Uh, form of oil, it actually has to be heated in order to transport it in a pipe, Uh, and it was rapidly identified by climate scientists. Uh, This pipeline was identified as uh, something that would be uh, a desperate threat to uh, uh, any efforts to restrain climate change. Uh, In fact, it was described as a uh, climate bomb uh, that uh, if it were built, it would essentially mean game over for climate protection by probably the leading climate scientists. So uh, in terms of corporations, there were all kinds of corporations that were involved in this uh, attempt to build this uh, devastating pipeline. It also would have devastated key environmental and farming areas uh, that the pipeline would have gone through. Uh, and there was, was a Canadian corporation that was the core of building it. Um, but there were also uh, uh, oil companies, fossil fuel companies that were involved in the extraction of the tar sands oil in Alberta and then at the other end there were uh, the refineries uh, in the gulf uh, where it would end uh, and that was a whole additional set of corporate interests um, pushing for this pipeline and then the, the real secret of the pipeline was that at the end there were uh, a series of export terminals. And although the pipeline was promoted as something that would uh, help m- m provide uh, uh, energy for the United States, in fact, the real plan was to export it uh, and have absolutely no benefit except for the corporations that were doing it, but we're not going to provide oil for the United States. So as you can see, uh, this was a tissue of lies and deceptions from the beginning. Um, Now, uh, the part of this story that Labor Network for Sustainability was involved with uh, had to do with the fact that from the very beginning, the pipeline, the company was building the pipeline, wanted to line up trade union support for the pipeline and to make workers be the poster children so to speak for all the benefits that would come from building this pipeline and so they went and made a what's called a project labor agreement uh, which is an agreement that a union uh, conditions and if possible union uh, members will be hired to do the work on a project and they went to four of the biggest unions uh, Teamsters and three others and made a project labor agreement and then those comp- those unions became the leading spokespeople for the project that how wonderful it was going to be producing jobs uh, and uh, in the terrible situation being faced at that time by construction workers in the aftermath of the Great Recession uh, and all kinds of fraudulent information about how many jobs would be created and what kinds of jobs would be created uh, was uh, disseminated. The um, uh, other thing that finally got exposed, although there was not much uh, awareness of it originally, the organization of the Building Trades Unions is the National Association of Building Trades, uh, NAB2 building trades unions. Uh, and they actually developed an alliance with the American Petroleum Institute, which is the uh, uh, business association, the trade association for uh, the oil and more broadly, the, the uh, it's basically for the oil industry. Um, and they had a series of cozy arrangements. They had uh, uh organi- an organization uh, that engaged in r- promoting their idea of what uh, the fossil fuel future should be that was uh, uh, I co-chaired or the two top officials were from the uh, uh, NABTU 2 uh, Union Federation and from the uh, Petroleum uh, Institute. Um, this, Uh, the industry exercised a tremendous amount of power in Congress. Basically, it controlled uh, George Bush and the Republican Party. Uh, And uh, uh, At one point, George Bush said the first act he was going to do when he came into office was to sign the uh, authorization for the KXL pipeline. Uh, the uh, energy industry, fossil fuel energy industry also had uh, enormous influence in the Democratic Party. As a matter of fact, uh, the uh, uh, Sunrise Youth Climate Organization managed to get the Democratic uh, Central Committee to declare that it would not take fossil fuel money. And within a month or two of that happening, all of a sudden the Democratic National Committee reversed itself and said, oh, we can't do that. So um, that was the, uh, uh, another example of how the corporate power actually functions. So let me go uh, direct quickly to how this was handled. First of all, massive direct action was central to countering it. In fact, the, uh, the term blockadia, as far as I know, was invented to talk about the on-the-ground direct action resistance to the building of the pipeline. Second, a wide alliance of many, many groups in many different parts of the country. Uh, there was even what was called the Cowboy Indian uh, Alliance, which was uh, ranchers in, uh, in the West uh, cooperating with. Uh, 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 Native Americans who were opposing the pipeline, massive amount of public education about the pipeline, but more broadly using that to educate people about the, um, uh, the um, climate issue as a whole, unity among the environmental organizations, and then pressure within the Democratic Party from the environmental wing and basically great fear on the part of, uh, at that time, Obama and the Obama administration, that they would lose the support of the environmental wing of the Democratic Party. So all those forces together, I think without any any of them uh, that had been left out, it wouldn't uh, have eventually gone through. But in fact, Obama, uh, uh, sorry, Biden, Obama refused to authorize the pipeline and the first act that Biden made on coming into office was to um, wipe it out. Uh, and uh, why don't I stop there? There's lots more that I could talk about, but i glad to return to it and to answer any questions uh, when we get to that point in the program.
1: Really appreciate uh, you sharing your insight into your work. Um, and thank you so much for uh, for presenting to us. Um, Next up in line, I'd like to uh, turn it back to Molly Coleman uh, to present her work in People's Parity Project. Go ahead, Molly. Hi,
0: everybody. Hopefully this is better. Great. What a relief. Um, Thank you again for having me. Really stoked to be here. So I'm going to quickly share my screen. I've got a... Hopefully not too painful PowerPoint so that I don't go totally off the rails in the next 10 minutes. Um, As you all heard when I was introduced, I'm a lawyer by trade. I started law school during the um, Trump administration, so, you know, very interesting time for folks who study the law. Um, For myself and for so many of my classmates, we came into law school, you know, I think with this very mythical idea of what a lawyer is right lawyers are the Thurgood marshals who are fighting for civil rights and building a country where there's justice and equity for all and that if we just got this degree, we could be a part of this really noble profession. I imagine this will not be surprising to those of you who are attending this conference. Um, we very quickly got to law school and realized that you know, while very rarely there are lawyers who do good things or you know, Supreme Court decisions that work out for people, the vast majority of the time, that is not the case. And far more often than not, um, it's the legal profession that is actually building a system that works not for justice and equity for people, but for corporations and their bottom lines. So as we started, you know, coming together, our first year of law school started having these conversations about why is it that kind of our idea of what the system would look like and what this profession would be is so very different from what we're actually experiencing. We both started to try to get to the bottom of this, try to actually understand what we weren't being taught about why is the law this way, Um, and also just try to start to do something about it. Because as I'll talk about, we very quickly saw that folks within the legal profession were very Complacent at best, um, satisfied with the status quo, and unwilling to do the deep organizing that it would take to change what the law looks like in this country. So, if I can figure out how to work this PowerPoint, um, you know, quote that I love: that the legal system is a normative instance of history. It's, you know, it's not something that exists independently. Um, It's about a vision of society. That um, the law will always express the groups behind that vision and the interests served by conceiving the society in that particular form. Um, skip this. So. I think that the first thing when we're talking about corporate power that we need to talk about is the role of the Chamber of Commerce in building the legal system as it currently exists. Um, Lewis Powell, who I'm sure many of you have heard of, he was a Supreme Court justice starting in, I believe, 1972. Before he was on the Supreme Court, he was a big corporate attorney representing big tobacco companies in, I believe, Virginia. And he... Wrote a memo for the Chamber of Commerce, arguing that the courts had been a critical neglected opportunity by the corporate power movement and that if they wanted to defeat people like Ralph Nader and the other young upstart crusaders for economic justice, the, uh, the courts were essential. And, and the Chamber of Commerce needed to think about how to litigate in the courts and how to utilize the legal profession as a key tool for upholding corporate power. Um, most often when they could not kind of win those same gains in in the state house. A history that I think is more commonly known at least at this point is the history of the Federalist Society, which grew out of kind of this disaffected conservative legal presence on law school campuses, starting in the eighties. This is after, you know, a couple of years into the Chamber of Commerce's intentional exploitation of the legal system to build corporate power. But you know, the second the Federalist Society got started, these two movements really began to work hand in hand to build the world that they wanted to see, which is one that worked for the rich, the wealthy, the white, um, and their corporate employers. And then the final group, that I- too often evades responsibility for the pro-corporate legal system that we have is the legal elites, folks on both sides of the aisle, you know, some who vote red, some who vote blue, but people who are generally okay with this corporate dominance of the legal system. So, you know, some examples that I have on this slide, we've got Supreme Court litigators who are, you know, just happy with whoever's on the Supreme Court. And they can't tell the difference between a Neil Gorsuch or a Brett Kavanaugh. And this is the new Soto mayor because, you know, they're just happy with all of them. You've got so-called liberals writing about how these pro-corporate judges should be on the bench. And frankly, you've got a bunch of Democratic appointed, appointed judges, justices, who are very, very fine with corporate dominance of the legal system. Um, and the schools like my lovely alma mater that are spitting out these corporate lawyers and these pro-corporate judges, and that's more money. Um, in their endowment, and they are just fine with that, and certainly don't like to be questioned. So consequences again. I don't think I need to tell anybody. I don't think I'm telling folks things that they don't know. But we have a legal system completely stacked in favor of corporate power. I think one really powerful example of this is forced arbitration. So it's a you know it's a 1925 1935 I should know this statute that basically was saying that two businesses with equal bargaining power should be able to arbitrate th- their disputes rather than go into the courtroom. Well, that's been completely distorted beyond all recognition by this pro-corporate Supreme Court and pro-corporate lower court judges. Um, you know, Now the vast majority of private sector, non-unionized workers are forced into arbitration when their wages are stolen, when they're sexually or racially harassed at work, um, when they are discriminated against for a protected status. Um, or for being a member of a protected class. None of that makes it into the courtroom at all anymore. The rules have been completely rewritten by corporations and their allies um, in the legal profession. There's a million other examples of this, right? Class action waivers, corporate immunity, all of the ways in which the actual rules of the game are being written by corporate America all to serve their bottom line, all to avoid accountability for perpetrating harm to workers, to consumers, to the public writ large. This is all being channeled into a privatized systems. It's being kept out of court and corporations are walking away from the harm that they cause and getting richer every day. Of course, you know we know that if, if workers or consumers, those harmed by corporate America are able to make it into a courtroom at all, The odds of getting any justice there are exceedingly low in large part because it's, you know, former corporate lawyers who are, who are filling the bench Um, 60% of active circuit court judges were partners at corporate law firms. It's, you know, an unbelievably small bubble of folks who make up these judges who make up the bench. Just 1% of circuit court judges did work representing people, you know, pro-people work for the majority of their careers careers rather than pro-corporate work. And as um, Dr. Joanna Shepard, an Emory University professor of law professor has written um, and has studied it extensively, we're getting opinions that reflect the composition of the bench. We are getting pro-corporate decisions from pro-corporate judges. So, I know I only have a couple of minutes left, so I want to turn to what's happening and what we're doing. Um, So I think that there have been a number of efforts in the past to kind of do some quote-unquote liberal organizing within the legal profession, but far too often that liberal organizing doesn't mean anti-corporate. In fact, it often means pro-corporate. So the Constitutional Accountability Center, they can do really incredible work, Their board chair is Andrew Pincus. Andrew Pincus is an attorney who argues in front of the Supreme Court to enhance corporate power as his job. That is what he does, and he is the board chair for a quote unquote progressive legal organization. We have the American Constitution Society, you know, the the liberal antidote to the Federalist Society, Well, until there was an immense pressure campaign a year ago, they had a union-busting lawyer for Amazon on their board of directors. So one of the things that we've really seen is that in the legal profession, not that there are no bright lines. You know, if you're anti-abortion, you're generally not welcome in the progressive legal movement. There is no such line when it comes to workers' rights, consumers' rights, or the advancement of corporate power. If you are pro-corporate America, if you spend your life's work building out corporate power, Arms wide open within the progressive legal movement, um, which is why we are where we are. So we are—we've started organizing, in an effort to respond to that, we are bringing together lawyers and law students who think that to be a progressive in this moment means to reject corporate capture of the legal system. Who want to think about how do we undo the harm that has been built up to this point? How do we operate within the system that we have? You know, we wherever you stand on the judiciary and its existence. It's going to continue to exist for the foreseeable future. So what are we doing to ensure that we have judges who have represented people who have represented workers and not just corporate America? How do we ensure that the laws that they're applying um, you know, give people a chance, not just corporations. And how do we build a community within the profession that says that if you are doing corporate legal work, if you are representing corporations day in and day out for the duration of your career, well, then you aren't representing the progressive legal movement and you don't get to make these decisions anymore. It is, it's an uphill slog. Um, you know, there are lots of systemic reasons. I think why, why we've gotten to where we are. Um, some, some better that are more defensible than others. Um, but that is what we are up to. Really excited to talk more as this conversation goes on.
1: Thank you so much, Molly. Really appreciate uh, the fantastic work that, you're, uh, that you and PPP are doing. Okay. Next up in our panelists uh, presentation, I'd like to welcome uh, Joe Logan uh, to share uh, his work uh, within the wire uh, Farmers Union and beyond.
2: Good afternoon everyone. Um, My name is Joe Logan. Uh, I am speaking to you uh, this afternoon from our Ohio Farmers Union office in the city of Ottawa, Ohio and I am a bit chagrined to say that this town has uh, taken its name uh, as a result of having been the last uh, Ohio-based reservation for the Ottawa Indian tribe before they were moved uh, west. So Uh, I know everybody's talked about the origins of, uh, native origins of wherever they come from. And unfortunately that's a sad legacy of uh, the origin of this town here in in Northwestern Ohio. Um, I'm speaking to you from Ottawa, Ohio, rather than from my farm in Eastern Ohio because my uh, rural internet is so poor there. So hopefully you can hear me all right. Uh, Let me know if you have a delay and uh, okay, we'll, we'll go from there. Well, let me uh, start off with just a little bit of a discussion about the Farmers Union organization. The uh, National Farmers Union uh, is the nation's second largest general farm organization. It has been active since 1902 uh, when a a group of farmers in the little town of Point, Texas uh, had a, a sad occurrence and that occurrence was that the cotton gin in their town, and this was a cotton farming area, the cotton gin in their farm was bought out by uh, uh, a gentleman in the, that owned the cotton gins in the surrounding farms. So corporate co- concentration was raising its head 120 years ago. So as a uh, and once that had happened and the uh, owner of these cotton gins understood that he had uh, essentially cornered the market opportunities for farmers in those areas. He told those uh, individual farmers, well, you know, you used to be getting paid uh, four cents a pound for your cotton. I'm going to pay you, too. And uh, farmers obviously understood that they couldn't uh, make a living that way. They couldn't pay their mortgages. They couldn't buy seed for the coming year. They couldn't feed their families through the winter. So that was not going to work they began um, organizing in a clandestine fashion. And it usually required that they would have an armed guard outside of the uh, the buildings or the houses or the barns where they met. And uh, because if the owner of the cotton gin understood that they were conspiring in this manner, he would have violently uh, interrupted them. But at any rate, they were successful at developing the first farmer's union organization in Point, Texas. And um, and they went to the uh, cotton gin owner and told him, listen, we represent all of the farmers in this area and you won't get any of our cotton unless you pay us five cents a pound. Well, the cotton gin owner hemmed and hawed and then he finally relented. And as a result, this was a, uh, a tremendous message about the benefit of farmers coming together to market their commodities as, uh, as a unit. And that cooperative uh, system is one that that really caught fire. And so from 1902 to 1920, the Farmers Union Organization grew from zero members to about 5 million. And uh, they managed to uh, get a number of uh, congressional representatives elected and a couple of governors. And uh, because the powers that be were very concerned about that, the uh, um, secretary of agriculture under the Woodrow Wilson administration, got together with uh, the New York City Chamber of Commerce and they developed an organization that was supposed to be a political and economic counterweight to the Farmers Union. And that counterweight um, was the, uh, an organization known as the Farm Bureau. So uh, you often hear the Farm Bureau associated as uh, uh, kind of an apologist for corporate agriculture and industrial agriculture, that is why. They were created in 1920 intentionally to express the business interests of agriculture, they've done so very effectively. And we are, of course, on the other side of the the spectrum. We are normally associated with the organization that represents small family farmers. And and this is the sort of a, you know, when you hear the word union, a lot of people kind of uh, have bought the, uh, the line about unions being very destructive to, Industrial organizations, well, ours is a little bit different because in most cases, family farmer, that farmer is not only the owner of the business and the manager of the business, but he also supplies the labor, that farm uh, and his uh, family. So it's a bit of a different um, organization, but uh, we think it's one that's very essential because one of the key components and principles of our organization is try to keep the economic benefits that are accrued through food and fiber and fuel production to be accrued to a larger number of of families rather than a few individuals. And that is why our organization is uh, traditionally and consistently associated with opposition to the industrial farms and the corporate farms that have come to dominate the uh, the landscape. So in talking about resistance to corporate agriculture, we're talking about, and I'm sure all my uh, colleagues on this uh, uh, Zoom session would agree, a very, very tall order. Um, you know, uh, the aggregation of power and wealth is I think most of my colleagues would agree is a feature of our capitalist system as it has evolved in the United States. And of course, one of the primary interests, uh, instruments through which that power aggregates is the corporation. And, um, um, you know, we've seen uh, concerns about the aggregation of power and wealth within too few hands from the very beginning of our nation and before. Um, When I was in school, I learned about the Boston Tea Party being a a rage against taxation without representation when in actuality, I have come to learn that it was more of a reaction against the uh, Dutch East India Trading Company which the uh, British crown had given um, an opportunity to dominate uh, all the trading that came in and out of those colonies. So it's essentially, that was an anti-corporate acting uh, rather than just a taxation without representation. And of course, Thomas Jefferson uh, was so concerned about the aggregation of wealth in our society that he actually recommended that every 20 years any debt that an individual would have accrued would be wiped off the books. Uh, a unique uh, compound that I think a lot of us would like to think about today. And of course, uh, uh, you know, we, we could never really get rid of the uh, corporate concentration and corporate power. It's something that has haunted this nation since before its inception. And uh, there have been a few times during our nation's history when we've had some kind of progressive breathing room uh, with regard to corporate power, the number one that we generally think about is the trust buster areas, uh, era of uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and his folks. And what, what conspired, what happened to make that happen? Well, I think that there's two things that, uh, that have to be in place to make progress in terms of resisting corporate power. First of all, we need to understand the dynamic. We need to understand that there is this proclivity of our capitalist society to aggregate wealth and that the aggregation of wealth in those shoe hands is very destructive to our society and our uh, social fabric as a whole. So we have to understand that. And I think that understanding uh, smacks us in the face pretty abruptly uh, sometimes if we pay attention. And then we also have to have individuals and institutions that have some integrity. And uh, we were fortunate enough that Teddy Roosevelt, the genuine progressive for his time, uh, sort of stood up, took the mantle and showed great leadership, along with a num- number of folks that were in um, um, the Congress at that time. And they, uh, they passed some pretty substantial laws, actually broke up some major corporations. We came up with some pieces of legislation called, you know, such as the Sherman Antitrust Act. And uh, in terms of farmers, um, a piece of legislation that most people are not aware of, but it's called the Packers and Stockyards Act. And it, uh, it really gets to the idea of giving farmers an opportunity to get a fair share and, a, and an even shake out of the uh, sale of their livestock. Now uh, so, and uh, let's, so let, let's look at the way agriculture, because that's kind of where I live, where I come from, uh, has been affected by this. As recently as 1987, the farmers, uh, generally speaking, would be able to uh, capture and maintain about 37% or 37 cents of every food dollar that the consumer expended. Uh, Not great, but uh, not too bad. Unfortunately, that percentage today is down to about 12 to 14 cents. So it's less than half today of, of what it was in, uh, this is 1987. So, um, you know, we, we've all experienced that corporations always have outsized influence throughout our organizations and institutions. And um, we have heard from our other uh, uh, presenters here on this that the legislature is uh, subject to the influence of um of uh, these corporations in a very stern way. They very often either stop or soften legislation that is designed to erode their power. And uh, the administrative uh, area, uh, we've seen that from time to time as well. Um, As a matter of fact, there is a phenomenon that probably many of you on this call are familiar with called the revolving door. And that is the scenario according to which the uh, vice president of a major corporation will be appointed to a position of oversight of an agency that is supposed to regulate that particular uh, agency. We've seen that in the oil and gas industry, in uh, uh, the food industry as well. So that revolving door is something that is used very effectively by corporations and it is uh, a very effective instrument to sort of corrupt and weaken any Uh, regulations that are designed to prevent their uh, accrual of power and wealth. And, of course, the judicial system. And, uh, you know, Hawley has been very good about uh, describing the evolution of the judicial system, the corruption there. And, of course, we're all very familiar with Citizens United and and some of those uh, things that have really been horribly destructive to uh, 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 keeping uh, corporate power at bay. Uh, And then, of course, it's also important to understand that there are many international organizations beyond our federal government that are um, are important to the WTO, the World Bank, and even the Fed um, are very important agencies that have um, found ways to contribute to the aggregation of wealth and power within the hands of corporations. So what do we do when corporations hold all the cards? They are very powerful, and uh, the question is, how do we break through? Well, uh, you know, I wish that there was a secret sauce uh, that we could use to, uh, to kind of crack this nut, uh, and unfortunately, if there is one, I haven't found it yet, uh, but there are a couple of things that we have uh, found that we, that can be useful in dealing with that, and the farmers' union very often works through these uh, state and federal Uh, legislatures and administrative uh, uh, regimes Uh, although that's not the only place we can go but uh, one of the things we need to do is to know the facts of the situation and um, one of the things that we've found is reasonably powerful in uh, in our discussions with legislators and and regulators is uh, to talk to them in the language that they respect and uh, in the field of economics and I'm not an economist but I know that economists has for, have for many decades used uh, what they call a CR4. That's the concentration ratio of the top four uh, corporate entities in any business. And the general rule of thumb has been for generations that if the CR4, in other words, the amount of uh, concentration in any segment of the industry gets above 40%, you, the industry is no longer competitive. And um, and you get corporate domination, and so what 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 do we see in the areas? Well, you know my specialty is in agriculture, and so we watch that pretty closely in agriculture, and um, we have a reasonably uh, progressive senator from Ohio by the name of Sherrod Brown, and he uh, just uh, printed up a paper and distributed it uh, a few weeks ago, and he talked about the CR four of the three general, general um, inputs, farm inputs that, uh, that farmers use. In order to grow crops, farmers, you know, in the, in the modern day of modern chemistry, we use three elements in order to, to uh, fertilize our crops nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Now, in terms of nitrogen, that CR4 is at 75%, and that 75% is dominated by a corporation called CF Industries a corporation called Nutrien L Limited, uh, Coke Industries, and uh, Yara USA. So those four uh, companies uh, control more than 75% of the nitrogen inputs that farmers use nationwide. It's an enormous, enormous hole. In terms of potassium, that CR4 is at 100%. And it's 100%, it's owned by only two corporations. And those two corporations are Nutrien, Once again, that's the same nutrient that exists up in the nitrogen and mosaic. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, and uh, then in the uh, phosphorus, uh, the CR4 is 90% and it's 90% owned by mosaic. So you can see that there's this domination uh, of corporations that maintain enormous control, usually across several segments. Mm -hmm. Now, if, if you look at, Seed, another thing that farmers need uh, to grow their crops. Uh, that CR4 is over 90%. And it's you know the usual suspects that we've all heard about, Monsanto, Bayer, Dow DuPont, and all of these nations. And not, not only do they own all of the seeds and commodities that farmers need, but they maintain a, a control over those so the farmers may not replant those seeds. Uh, can you, did you have something you wanted to say?
1: Oh, no, I really am appreciating uh, the, like the depth of information like that goes into this. And like, those are really good corporations to like name out, uh, especially within like the big ag industry. I also want to make sure that we can uh, open up time for um, uh, our, uh, our guests to uh, answer questions and open up the comment session. And it goes really well into um, the Q&A session real quick. So Um, The chat is going to be reopened. um, So get your questions ready, uh, folks, uh, those of you that are listening in. And I'd like to start off um, because, which Joe, you kind of uh, started going into there uh, with your last comment with, um, you know, power doesn't concede anything without a demand. We also like we all know that corporations are very skillful in uh, you know, um, reading the like reading the public sentiment and uh, the the cultural trends that go on, and then co-opting those messaging, um, messagings and so on um, to make it seem like they're like you know that they're with us uh, that they're in alignment, but without actually changing their core business models or even just like uh, doing actions that we like you know reflect their talk and actions. So I want to open this up, and I, I'd like to start with uh, uh, Molly responding to this question, followed by Jeremy. Um, of like from your experience uh, within your respective fields uh, and corporate resistance, what have you seen as effective strategies and tactics to um, not just counter this co-opted messaging but also to force corporations to walk their talk and uh, and, and actually li- like live up to uh, what like through the promises they're making to the public?
0: It's a great question and I'm thinking You know, I'm laughing right now just thinking about everything we've seen from corporate America since um, Roe v Wade was overruled on Friday and all these corporations coming out and saying, you know, well, we're going to pay for our employees to cross state lines if they need to access abortion care with, you know, seemingly no recognition of the reality that that then requires workers to tell their bosses that they intend to go break the law in order to seek an abortion that they probably don't want to talk to their employer about. And the reality is the the reason Roe v. Wade was overturned is because corporations funded Republican candidates who then were able to take advantage of the anti-democratic features of our system, stack the court and overturn abortion access. So it's just, I mean, I think it's a really compelling example of how corporations will say what they need to say to get the good press, to get the likes on Twitter, um, and in reality benefit entirely from the system that they have built. So, I think that there are a couple of things. I think you know, one thing that we've seen in our organizing is that there are some ways to put pressure on some facets of corporate America. So we, um, as I was talking about up top, we do a lot of work around forced arbitration and course of contracts. And we've, uh, you know, we've seen that there's have been some ways for workers, you know, to stand united, whether through a union or or without a union to put pressure on their individual employers to make some changes. So I think a good example of that is the Google workers who were able to pressure Google to end the use of forced arbitration um, for their employees. We've been able to do similar work at a number of corporate law firms where all workers, you know, lawyers, but also paralegals, custodial staff, secretarial staff were all ultimately freed from forced arbitration clauses because of worker pressure. That said, I think that those wins are going to be Few and far between because at the end of the day, corporations, you know, they aren't willing to sacrifice their bottom line and they aren't willing to make the significant changes that are needed unless we force them to. And the tool that we have to force corporations to change is the law. But right now, the law is dominated by corporate, corporate politicians, corporate judges, um, and their allies. So I think that if you aren't focusing on that level of systemic change, kind of at the level of individual, the individual firm level, you're never going to see the mass change that's necessary, but you can exert that pressure. You can use that as a public education tool. You know, again, thinking about forced arbitration, we, we saw people put pressure on individual firms that raised collective awareness about the harm caused by forced arbitration, which then put pressure on Congress to act, which then led to the House passing legislation to outlaw the use of forced arbitration by corporate America. It didn't get us, you know, it didn't get us the Senate, it didn't get us all the way there, but I think that if you think tactically, you're able to use some of that pressure to create the larger change.
1: Really great points uh, on that. Jeremy, go ahead.
3: Um, well, the fact that our uh, climate is continuing to be destroyed by corporations that uh, claim that they are contributing to climate protection Uh, shows that your basic point is completely on target and not something that we're easily going to be able to change. In fact, the um, uh, challenge to corporate greenwashing, as it's often referred to, uh, is part and parcel and central to the struggle against the um, uh, actual direct harm that fossil fuel and related corporations are doing by pouring their climate destroying uh, greenhouse gases into the biosphere. Um, However, uh, the uh, extent to which they have been forced to change their rap and their approach shows that growing public understanding and outrage about climate destruction and fear of climate destruction uh, is a major force affecting um, uh, the fossil fuel industry and its supporters. Um, And this comes uh, about in a number of ways. Um, uh, Part, I think, it, it's important to have that just the public education, research expose of what they're actually doing as opposed to uh, what they claim to be doing that's beneficial. Uh, and in fact, there's been uh, uh, considerable shift on the part of um, uh, corporations from a gung-ho greenhouse gases are good for you essentially they're good for the economy they're good for people to oh we're not involved with that we're getting rid of that we're pulling out of that the fact that they have to uh, change their PR uh, role is in itself not the solution to the problem but it is a critical indicator of the fact that they are scared uh, and worried about um, the pressures that are being put on them. And that combined with direct pressure to shut down pipelines, shut down uh, uh, fossil fuel power plants, and shift major investment to uh, 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 climate-safe energy production, Uh, and reduction of um, uh, the waste of energy uh, by increasing um, energy efficiency, energy conservation, Uh, these all go hand in hand. The pushback on the corporate greenwashing is one piece of the overall struggle uh, uh, to force the change on the fossil fuel corporations and their supporters. Let me just say another piece of it is chipping away at their support, which is essentially uh, a big part of what my organization, Labor Network for Sustainability, tries to do. And just for example, on the KXL pipeline, we were able to get a number of unions that said, no, this is not what we should be doing. We shouldn't be doing these tar sands pipelines. We should be creating jobs uh, in renewable energy. Uh, We should be making sure they're good jobs and um, that that's a much more beneficial thing to working people in general and to most trade union members uh, than continuing to be a shill of uh, the fossil fuel energy industry. That's a really good
1: point. Um, I'd like to hear from Joe, too, um, in response to this question, then I have a follow-up that comes right after that.
2: Um, Go ahead. Uh, uh, Just briefly, uh, thank you, Kim. Um, uh, Great points. Uh, I I think that they uh, illustrate very closely that what we are trying to accomplish in aggregate here is something that the American public overwhelmingly supports. So, you know, that's the good news. And the traditional tried-and-true way of accomplishing social and economic change has been to work through legislatures and the uh, uh, political institutions, but it's really hard to find uh, good arbiters uh, in that political scene anymore. And so I think we need to look more and more toward alternative ways to approach this situation. And of course, we've seen historically uh, Harvard University divesting of their investments in South Africa or in climate uh, uh, initiatives and uh, you know that, that has some potential because big money talks and that works for um, labor retirement funds and all those sorts of things too. Uh, big money talks. And so I think that that aggregation of getting big money to do the talking for us and the uh, strategic use of uh, an array of social networking has the potential to have some change, uh, perhaps more effectively than the traditional way of going to talk to your legislature and working with your regulators.
1: Mm. Good point. That leads well into my follow-up question. You know, it's like, we're talking about, as we talk about, you know, how do we get big money to talk? It's also important, like, to think, for us to think about, I think, um, how do we shake uh, everyday people, community members, workers, uh, at all levels who, you know, for be- like, uh, like not, in no fault to their part are like a lot of us are struggling, you know, just to keep basic, like our basic necessities in, uh, uh, within our reach, uh, food on the table, roofs over our heads, um, clean water and air, um, you know, so a lot of times it can be uh, not just, you know, apathy, but also fear and um, also isolation from within those struggles. So uh, my question is, is like, um, kind of in the vein of what Joe just said of like ha- like getting big money to talk, how do we chip away at the corporate support um, within our respective issue areas, especially when it comes to um, uh, it, like for everyday community members? Let's start with, uh, let's start this uh, line of question off with uh, Molly, then uh, Joe, then Jeremy.
0: So one thing that I think about here, you know, I think that over the last handful of years we've seen this conversation about corporate dominance and the harm that it causes to become mainstream i think that it's something that you know most politically engaged active people are you know at least in the orbit of i don't know that we've done a good job talking about how when you are struggling to put food on the table when you're struggling to pay rent when you are you know just struggling to get by tying that to corporate dominance and tying that to the government's failure to regulate corporate America. And I think that 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 kind of, not just as an abstract challenge, but sort of what does this mean for your day-to-day life? How are we demystifying these concepts of what corporate power is doing to our society and making that real for people so that, yes, go about your day-to-day life, do what you need to do to put food on the table, do what you need to do to kind of get through the day and understand exactly how much harder that task is because of what corporate America has done to all of us. And I think that this is something that book plug, um, for those who haven't read David Dayan's Monopolization, it's a really, really excellent, excellent book that walks through kind of each aspect of our daily life and talks about how that is worse because of corporate dominance. And so I think that if we did a better job of talking about that, making this concrete less abstract, we would find that people are able to engage in the struggle with us and wanting to kind of think about the world through this framework. I also think that there can be a, you know, something that I think about a lot in my line of work is how do we make sure that people who, because of economic necessity or otherwise engage with corporate America, either work for these corporations that are causing this harm or take advantage of them, like occasionally order products from Amazon, because it is easier than doing whatever else you need to do. Um, Making sure that people don't feel like, well, I am, I've done this, I participate in this, I have this job, and therefore I can be a part of this conversation, therefore I'm perceived as the problem. Because when we exist in this system that is so distorted, we are all in some way, you know, the, the no ethical consumption under capitalism, right? Like we all participate in this. And I think making sure that we build our tent and build, the universe of people who want to engage in this work with us we will be better off than than if we alienate folks who again have to make choices for very real reasons we think about this a lot at people's parity project you know Corporate law is actively harming people. And also if you have $300,000 of student debt and the federal government's loan forgiveness program is completely unreliable, it doesn't make sense for us to go after the individuals who choose to go into corporate law to pay off their debt. It does make sense for us to talk about what are you doing there? How long are you gonna be there for? How do we change these structures so that that doesn't have to be your only choice? Um, but how do we do that in a way that that makes those people want to come and get involved with us? rather than saying like, oh, well, that's those leftists over there. Like, I don't fit in with them. I'm not welcome there. So therefore I'm just gonna accept the status quo or continue to build these really inequitable systems of power. So those are a couple of the things that I think about. I think it's a really good question. I'm eager to hear what others have to say.
2: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, in in the dealing with uh, everyday uh, folks out on the street, how do you get their attention? How do you move the dial? you know, one of the big things that's really beleaguering uh, people these days is the whole idea of inflation. The other day I pulled up to a gasoline uh, station and there was a sticker on the gasoline pump that said, Joe Biden's raised your prices because he wouldn't let them build the Keystone XL pipeline. And uh, when in actuality, um, the problem is not the XL uh, Keystone uh, pipeline, The, the problem is that Shell Corporation Made $9.1 billion in quarter one this year. And um, um, so that's where most of your uh, opportunity is coming from. If any of these oil companies wanted to make a bunch of money, they could just pump some oil, refine some oil. At $100 a barrel, they'll uh, extend those uh, um, profits even higher. Uh, look at the uh, the other thing is the food industry. Everybody's got to eat. Uh, I happen to raise grass-fed beef. I sent a couple of cows to market uh, a few weeks ago. I got 80 cents a pound for my cattle. And you walk into the grocery store and it's uh, $4 a pound for uh, the cheapest burger you can find. And then you look at the newspaper and you find out that the JBS corporation made $16.8 billion in quarter two alone. And by the way, JBS is a Brazilian owned corporation that is the largest owner of uh, processing and the largest owner of cattle in the United States. Smithfield used to be a Virginia corporation. It's now owned by a Chinese corporation. They own one out of every four of the hogs that are slaughtered for your bacon or sausage, whatever you're gonna have in the morning. And uh, you know their quarterly profits was $27.9 billion. That's enormous. And once again, a Chinese owned corporation. If people want to know where their food comes from and want to pay an actual farmer rather than a foreign corporation, it's time to change things.
1: Great point. Go ahead, Jeremy.
3: Uh, I think maybe the most useful thing I can do is to pick up from the story of the struggle against the KAA Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, and talk about some of the things that we uh, in the Labor Network for Sustainability uh, developed as strategies there for undermining the corporate juggernaut and uh, some of the dimensions of corporate power. So um, one of the things that we did, uh, although there was official uh, neutrality and then support from the major labor federation, the AFL-CIO, for the XL pipeline and many and unions that were supporting it. There also were unions that uh, partially as a result of the educational activities of climate activists uh, decided that they were actually either going to remain neutral or in some cases uh, become active opponents of the KXL pipeline. Uh, and for example, Transit were uh, two main transit worker unions uh, took quite strong stands that we need jobs, uh, but the jobs we need are not expanded fossil fuel jobs. The jobs we need are uh, jobs that will help solve the climate crisis, and that uh, expanding public transit and reducing. Uh, uh, gas propelled, uh, fossil fuel driven uh, vehicles was better, both in the point of view of working people's need for jobs and from the point of view of working people's and others needs for a uh, uh, climate future that would allow us to live and and thrive. So that was one dimension. Uh, Then we were directly involved with trying to show jobs alternatives to the KXL pipeline and in fact we uh, worked with a couple of economists to develop a detailed plan for jobs uh, for people who had the same skills as building pipelines and we uh, showed uh, uh, the along county by county along the course of the Uh, pipeline route, how you could produce more and better jobs, uh, for example, fixing water, uh, ancient antique water systems, uh, plugging the leaks in in municipal gas uh, uh, mains, and other things that would use the same skills for the same people, but provide a much better alternative, both from the point of view of the climate, and also from the point of view of working people who need jobs, uh, it's not uh, uh, because they want to destroy the climate, it's because they have to put uh, food on the table. Uh, So that was another approach. Um, Another one was to expose the union links to industry. So the extent to which the American petroleum industry was really whose uh, words were being spoken by the unions that were uh, advocating for the KXL uh, pipeline and to show how much they would um, how most workers, most, including most union members, would benefit tremendously more from the transition to uh, 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 renewable climate safe energy. And that leads really to the final point that I wanted to make, which is the, the other key element here is the broad concept of um, uh, what has been very well uh, encapsulated, as, in my view, with the idea of the Green New Deal, that, which brings together the need for climate protection with the need for economic and social and racial justice and the need for high quality employment. Uh, I think this speaks very much to uh, Molly's point about the need for um, programs and vision that actually addresses the problems that people uh, need. Now, the problem is that we've gotten very, uh, although there's huge public support for Green New Deal type programs, uh, obviously, For the same reasons we've been discussing, uh, it has been stymied in Congress, but what's happening and what I'm actually working on now is the fact that there is a what I call the Green New Deal from below developing at community levels, city levels, state levels uh, all over the country uh, that are following out the basic orientation of the Green New Deal in terms of creating uh, uh, high-quality jobs and greater economic, racial, and social justice through programs that also protect the climate. For example, by replacing fossil fuel burning by renewable energy, solar, and wind, Um, by having uh, massive programs to insulate and uh, uh, make in a deep energy efficiency for mm. housing, for uh, uh, commercial buildings, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I got same for tra- transportation, developing transit as an alternative to everybody driving around in their own fossil fuel vehicle. And I could go on and on on writing about this uh, uh, extensively at the moment because it's quite exciting to see the range of things that are going on uh, in the Green New Deal from below.
1: Hmm. Really appreciating these these perspectives and insights. Um, I wanna take some time really quick to just lift up a a few comments that have been made uh, into the chat. Uh, One from um, uh, Richard Demere, the American Monetary Reform Act establishes a good tool that stops feeding corporate power Um, in my opinion, and that is by establishing bailments when we make bank deposits and having lawyers to assure that the bank is indeed treating the account as the depositor's property and not as deposits made in federal reserve notes. Also wanna lift up a comment made by Linda Gillison. Uh, It's the power of the huge four internationals who produce and process that keeps us from having a country of origin labeling process in this country. Rancher friends like farmers are under these four thumbs. In in every area of life of all of us, corporate rule is uh, pushing us down. We need to help more folks think in terms of solidarity and common purpose rather than the insane individualism of modern American society. Individual individualism plays right into the hands of hug multinational corporations, uh, huge multinational corporations. Sorry, (laughs) Um, but uh, I want to just give a quick like you know open thought process uh, to anyone that uh, wanted to respond to any of these particular comments
2: that have come up in the chat. Open stack. Well, Kian, uh, this is Joe. Uh, obviously, country of origin labeling has been one of our keystone uh, uh, issues for many years. We finally got it in the Farm Bill in 2012. Uh, it only lasted a few years before the Canadian government, and the Mexican government, and a whole institution of uh, quasi-governmental institutions within the U.S. Uh, sued uh, the Congress and got it repealed. So it, it is it is currently having a revitalization and Senator Tester from Montana has included it in some of the legislation that he has brought forward uh, over the last couple of uh, uh, weeks and months. And uh, it has just uh, passed um, the uh, one of the committees, the Agricultural Committee, uh, just passed out of the Agricultural Committee uh, recently So we have some hope that it's gonna raise its head again. Uh, Once again, this is something that is uh, supported by 90% of the farmers, 90% of consumers. Once again, overwhelmingly uh, uh, popular by everybody except the corporations. Hmm.
1: Definitely hear that. Looking at the chat, we have a a few questions from audience members. One I want to lift up um, from Patricia was, you know, uh, and and I think some of you have spoken to this a bit, Uh, maybe we can get a little bit deeper into it. We are dealing with corporations that are the root cause of the issues that we have been discussing these last two days and buy off the government to look the other way. And yet we look to them to solve these problems. What can be done to expose the very real harms being done and not allow for corporate whitewashing to continue? And uh, if we're looking for a little bit of order, I uh, would invite uh, Molly to chime in, uh, followed by Jeremy and then Joe. And feel free to pass if, you, if you're if you still thinking. <laughs> yeah,
0: I wish I had better answers. I mean, I, I think one thing that we can do and that we've been focused on is doing a better um, job of exposing, as people have already talked about today, the revolving door. I think really, really you know, not just talking about what are corporations actually doing, but what are their executives then going on to do when they serve in government? Um, And I would add their lawyers, um, making sure we are kind of paying attention to how, how that revolving door operates, not just like from lobbying to government, but from industry to government, from law firms to government, because that, I think that that is where kind of you see all the cards put out on the table, um, and they can't hide behind pretty words in the same way that they, that kind of private sector is able to. So that to me is a big thing, and I'll drop a link into the chat to some of the reports that we've done on this topic, um, with the organization revolving door project, but, but yeah, I don't, uh, it's so hard because it, because I think it's, for those of us who are doing this, right, it feels so obvious. It's like, let's, we know what they're actually doing. How are people believing the, these press statements that they put out, these things that they're doing for Good Publicity? And, and I don't know that I have better answers. Make to hear more.
2: Appreciate perfect all the same. My experience is that there are a few uh, voices of integrity uh, in, the, uh, in the Congress of the United States. Not a great many, but a few. And uh, uh, there are a lot of folks that I think speak with integrity and some passion about the absolute essential necessity of solving these problems before we get uh, too much further down the road. Uh, th- I think the public distaste for our current inequity and wealth and power in this country is uh, reaching a climax. And uh, I know one of the organizations that I uh, belong to is called the Organization for Competitive Markets. And one of their strategies is to believe that the industry is already so consolidated that it's gonna create that critical mass that is gonna fall apart. And so what we need to do is to create an arc, uh, so to speak, uh, where we can uh, create a local food systems in local communities that can come in and replace the industrial food system once it collapses. And of course, during the COVID uh, scenario, we saw many of the huge industrial agribusiness corporations falter and fall down. And uh, I know we sell grass-fed beef off our farm, and we saw an enormous resurgence of demand for our local products uh, when JBS was unable to supply them.
1: Appreciate that, uh, that comment, Joe. Um, Want to open up for Jeremy if uh, you have anything to add into that and then um, I have a, a couple of thoughts I wanted to share with it. Uh, I think actually
3: my last uh, statement pretty much uh, is all the illumination I have to bring to this at the moment. So I will defer yeah. to you with the other participants.
1: Yeah, no worries. Um, I've really appreciated the, you know, how we are really getting into um, what is that, the, like, at the, the core of like corporate tactics and like, uh, you know, brainstorming and thinking of ideas and like how and for, based on y'all's experience of um, resisting and undermining these corporate tactics because that like really what like what is ultimately going to get us down to this, right? Um, one of the things I wanted to uh, kind of lift up from the commentary that I'm hearing as well as like, um, how a lot of this is considered like, you know, uh, this corporate messaging, the co-optation, um, and, uh, you know, the false belief that it is, is like, it's gaslight, uh, a lot, like for a lot of, like, of communities and, uh, especially for, uh, uh black and uh, brown people of color, especially, and also women, um, and just, like thinking that there isn't as big a problem as we think there is, even though, you know, we are sitting with a planet on fire and screaming about it. And they're just saying, no, just be calm, just keep like, just be calm. Um, and a lot of that comes to because like, we, we have to deal with this gaslighting a lot of times because corporations at like, you know, in the United States are treated as, um, as individu- like as persons with the same inalienable rights as human beings. And their money is considered a form of protected political speech, uh, which basically allows like means that any corporation, um, can override, like, you know, that as long as corporations are considered people with the same inalienable rights as human beings, they can effectively afford to assert their interests, their perspectives, their values, uh, upon every human being in our communities through sheer concentration of wealth. And we, as a people just have to like, you know, rise up and take that. So. The question I wanted to really raise uh, within this, uh, and it was it was a question that came up from uh, uh, Greg Coleridge earlier. You know, is um, like you know, what fundamental changes do you all suggest from your uh, from your uh, unique perspectives um, that would improve the conditions of the issues of people and communities that you work with, uh, work on, and with. Um, move to amend, of course, supports the "We the people amendment, uh, which is in Congress's House Joint Resolution 48, which calls, uh, explicitly for abolishing the Supreme Court created doctrine of, uh, that, of co- corporate constitutional rights. Um, is this one, like, you know, beyond the fundamental changes that you all recommend, is this amendment one of the fundamental changes that you would also suggest? I want to open that up to the first person that has, a.
2: That has a competence? Well, I would just say absolutely. Uh, that's one of the key elements. That's why our organization has been a member of the uh, Move to Amend uh, movement for uh, a long period of time. And that's uh, just absolutely critical. It's a key component we need to resolve. And I'll also just mention that I just got a, a note here that uh, National Farmers Union President. Uh, We'll speak at an American Antitrust Institute roundtable on June 29th, and uh, if anybody is interested, it's free to register, and you can check that out on the National Farmers Union website. That's nfu.org. If you're interested, thank
1: you so much for that, Jane.
0: I can jump in. Yeah, we definitely think that you know a key structural Citizens United has been devastating for this country. Any you know. uh, it, it, it's almost impossible to overstate really how much that has allowed for corporations to dominate our our so called democracy. So that has to be a top priority. At People's Parity, we are also strongly supportive of Supreme Court expansion. The Supreme Court right now is you know one of the number one tools. That's what brought us Citizen United. It is how corporations are writing the rules of the game and ensuring that they always win. It's going to be the entity that lets corporations get away with you know destruction of our planet. I think we are likely to see some really horrible opinions this week, like in West Virginia v. EPA, which is going to basically gut the government's ability to regulate corporations' contributions to um, climate change. So we support Supreme Court expansion, but not just, you know, expanding the Supreme Court to 13 justices and adding for pro-corporate judge- justices to the bench. You know, This really has to be about building up both Supreme Court expansion, but also ensuring that we have a pipeline of pro-worker, pro-consumer, yeah. pro-people judges who are ready to fill those seats once we add them. So thinking about who are we putting on the bench at all levels, both federal and state courts. Um, this isn't a structural reform, but I do wanna just shout out one of the comments in the chat about the Attorney General's Alliance and the ways in which these bodies that are meant to be protecting workers and consumers are bought off by corporations the attorney general's alliance as a attorney general alliance is an incredibly heinous example of this i mean if you see their newsletter it is sponsored by amazon sponsored by amazon sponsored by amazon well these are the people who are trusting to regulate amazon and ensure that amazon isn't running roughshod over workers and consumers so really looking at kind of who is running our government and who is funding the people who are running our government, I think is so essential. Um, Not necessarily a structural reform, although there are obviously laws that would better enable us to do that, but that I really thought was worthy of mention. Last thing I'll say is just continue on the courts is state courts really, really wanna emphasize that as the kind of federal government gets out of the business of running the country, which we're increasingly seeing, except for when it comes to guns, um, these issues are going to go to state courts. And we have far more democratic control over state judiciaries than federal judiciary. So ensuring that the people in those seats aren't going to be a rubber stamp for corporate interests, I think is so, so critical.
1: Really appreciate that, uh, that thought, Molly. Um, Jeremy, wanted to offer you the opportunity to uh, weigh in. Yeah, just briefly, um, the
3: latest, poll data I saw this morning said that uh, only 25% of the po- uh, population uh, of the United States say they have uh, a great deal or a fair amount of confidence uh, in the Supreme Court. So I think we should recognize that we are in a situation uh, where there uh, the legitimacy of um, the legal s- institutions and uh, is uh, definitely being put in question. We know there are different reasons for that. Some of it is a uh, right-wing manifestation. Uh, Well, if they won't make Trump be king, they must be illegitimate. Uh, There's a substantial part of it now that is the result of uh, the court's overturning of Roe v. Wade and a wide proportion of the population, especially but not entirely women, are uh, uh, just don't accept the legitimacy of that ruling. Uh, and we're facing various, uh, but a, a major piece of it is the recognition of corporate dominance of the Supreme Court. Uh, and so it seems to me that anything that raises consciousness about that, educates the public about that and makes people feel that there's a fundamental problem that needs to be addressed here is completely positive and I I would see the uh, move to amend strategy of focusing on uh, the corporate domination through the corporate person uh, uh, fallacy Fallacious doctrine, uh, and more generally, through the various techniques that are being have strengthened the hand of corporations in the domination of the legal system, and specifically the Supreme Court. Uh, anything that educates the public and undermines further that, uh, uh, or, or let's put it differently, that increases the public skepticism that the Supreme Court really represents the people rather than representing the corporations uh, is positive. And we should use many different techniques, but certainly the uh, uh, cha- challenging the idea that corporations uh, have the rights of living human beings is a very good positive way of going about this. Um, and using that to, to uh, further raid, undermine and provide the questions, that will lead people to say we have to go in a different direction with the Supreme Court and with the government as a whole.
0: Hmm. If we could just stay on the Supreme Court for one more second. I saw um, the question from Jenny on Supreme Court, on impeachment of Supreme Court justices, which is a favorite topic of mine. So thanks, Jenny, for the question. So look, obviously, we're not going to There are no constitutional grounds for impeaching all of the justices because they are too friendly to corporate America. Um, That might be a change that we want to consider in the future, Um, but I don't think that's going anywhere right now. But I do, I think it's really, really critical that we talk about, You know, when we talk about the structural reform we need within the federal judiciary at the level of the Supreme Court, we have to be talking about the fundamentally illegitimate nature of the Supreme Court. And that's not just because of the consolidation of power within the court. That's not just because of the corporate capture of the court, it's because we have multiple justices who are on the bench who got there by illegitimate means or who have used their power in deeply, deeply illegitimate ways. So there's obviously, I think that the big one right now is Clarence Thomas the fact that his wife was participating in the efforts to overthrow the democratically elected leadership of the country and he failed to recuse from a case involving the release of those records and actually was the only justice on the court to vote to conceal those records from congressional investigation. We have to be talking about opening impeachment investigations into Clarence Thomas. We've long advocated that we need to be opening impeachment investigations into Justice Kavanaugh the sh- absolute sham of an FBI investigation into the credible allegations of sexual assault against him mean that he cannot legitimately continue to serve without these without these allegations being investigated in a way that they were not by the FBI in whatever year that was twenty seventeen. Who remembers time twenty eighteen? Um, you know, I think that sadly we're probably stuck with Neil Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett. I uh, there were huge irregularities in how we got Neil Gorsuch on the bench, but that one we're probably gonna have to live with. But I do think, look, this is a position, if you are going to be serving in a lifetime position with this much authority over what happens in our country, you cannot be there if you are using your power illegitimately or if you got there in an illegitimate manner. So we strongly support opening impeachment investigations. um, And, you know, we'll see, we'll see if Congress does anything, but that's where we stand.
1: That we'll see, but um, as as it's been raised by all of you, Uh, over the course of this discussion, it's, you know, legitimacy matters. And like, it doesn't matter what system that we're (laughs) involved in, but especially if we're going to call ourselves democracy, which one of the grounding assumptions of this gathering is that we have never been a functioning democracy. We were rooted, like we were found on the basis of property rights and added human rights as an afterthought. But the more that we see these illegitimate, uh, these illegitimate actions that lead to illegitimate decision making and enforcement of policy uh, against so many of us, in this case, more than two thirds of the U.S. population, 325 plus million, you know, there's going to be a, a much like there's going to be a much bigger question of how are you going to legitimately enforce that because the, you know they they may have an overwhelming monopoly on violence but they don't have an overwhelming number to enforce that upon this large of a population. So I, like, I don't know if any of you are joining in, but I'm at the mind of like, come make me. Um, so with that said, uh, we are at time. And uh, I really just, w- again, want to thank uh, Molly, uh, Molly Coleman, Jeremy Bresher, and uh, Joe Logan. Um, thank you so much for your uh, insightful commentary, sharing your work with us and uh, really just engaging with us in this really powerful discussion. Uh, I wish you well um, in your current work and uh, really looking forward to uh, future collaborations uh, at the many
2: intersections uh, within this uh, movement for democracy.